Hey everyone, welcome to New Slang. I am music journalist Thomas Mooney, your host. And on this episode, episode 102, I'm joined by Mr. Lou Lewis of Rattlesnake Milk. For those who may be unfamiliar, Rattlesnake Milk is originally from Lubbock. All those guys have been in bands from here over the years. They've played in a handful of really, really great Lubbock bands. We're talking about like Brandon Adams and the Sad Bastards, One Wolf, one of my favorites, Veda Moon. Lou had been in a bevy of bands over the years, Psychic Flowers probably being the biggest. We talk about that mid-2000s era of Lubbock music during this. They also just recently released their second album, a 10-track self-titled effort that really is one of the best representations of how Lubbock, the Panhandle, the South Plains, and how really like West Texas sounds. It's train beat rhythms, these packed punches of surf guitar blitzes, and the characters who inhabit these songs, they're the same folks who are pumping gas next to you at the convenience store on the edge of town. They're sitting at the bar on a Saturday night just looking to take the edge off that week. Specifically, one of the things I think they get right about these characters in songs like Abernathy, Eloise, Blood, and Cowboy Killers is just how rough they are. There's a toughness to them. And I don't mean that in a rough and tough, rude kind of way. Rather, it's one of those things where life hasn't been the most pleasant or easy. I think it's super easy to generalize West Texas. You know, it's like the, oh, it's hot, flat, far, and just dull out here. And it's like that everywhere. Well, that's just like obviously not the case. I say this all because Rattlesnake Milk really picks up on those nuances. The experiences of those cotton farmers of the opening track Abernathy, they're different walks of life in comparison to the to the logbook juggling cross-country truck driver of the song Dave Dudley or the slick chain smoker of Cowboy Killers. Like Abernathy... That may as well be like the river era Springsteen. It goes from like this complete romanticism of marrying young and beginning your life to being woken up from that dream with a draft letter. It's incredibly dark, but there's like this really romantic element nestled at the core of this line. In the end, if you die, you know my ghost is going to come and haunt you. I don't know about you, but I feel like that line specifically really represents this couple. But back to the bigger, larger point, Rattlesnake Milk really rolls around in the dirt and just like lays out in the sun on this album. These songs are by and large a grittier, darker at times, but ultimately an earnest and honest representation of this area. And to be specific, it feels like a the 60 mile bubble where Plainview is the epicenter and Lubbock's on the edge and it's just the proverbial sea of endless cotton rows and the occasional pump jack grazing pasture, horse corral, and feedlot. As always, if this is your first time listening to New Slang, please hit that subscribe button. It's on all your major podcast platforms. Before we get right into the interview, I wanted to talk to you a second about podcasting and Buzzsprout. It feels like everyone has a podcast these days. It's been really great to see people use podcasting as a storytelling outlet and to find like-minded people. You may have seen New Slang take a really big jump this past year, and one of the main reasons has undoubtedly been transitioning over to Buzzsprout as my podcast host. They've really made all the quote-unquote unfun things about podcasting so easy. For starters, that's why New Slang is on every major podcasting platform now, and why it's been so uniform and organized online. I've always enjoyed speaking with songwriters and bands and artists. That's a given. But now Buzzsprout has made it so much easier on the publishing side. 
So if you've ever been interested in launching your own podcast, I'd highly recommend Buzzsprout, which if you follow the link in the show notes, you'll be able to A, sign up with Buzzsprout, B, be given a $20 Amazon gift card, and C, help support New Slang. Again, that link will be in the show notes. And as a reminder, I just did launch a New Slang merch store. Currently, we have magnets, koozies, buttons, and stickers. Working on a handful of new t-shirt ideas. I'm also thinking about coffee mugs, keychains, caps, and maybe even coasters. Let me know what you think about those ideas. I'll have a link to that store in the show notes as well. All right, here is Lou Lewis of Rattlesnake Milk. Yeah, so you guys released this new record just a, a minute ago, basically. And I know it was like kind of a, you know, a long time coming for y'all. You had, you guys had been working on this for a while. And, um, I guess like what, what is it like releasing like a record that you've been putting your heart and soul into right as like, we're in this like strange pandemic time. Man, that's, that's a good question. You know, it's one of those things, like, the first record we did was almost eight years ago, which seems crazy that we didn't have a, a record put out throughout that whole time. I mean, we were playing tons of shows. But really, we were we finished recording that record two years ago, and uh, we were kind of going back and forth with a couple little labels, and it didn't work out. And... uh it was just very surreal. Like, oh, we're finally putting out a record in eight years and it's in the middle of, you know, a pandemic, which is pretty nuts. But, you know, everything happens for the reason. It ended up being pretty cool. Luckily, we, we found these guys in Austin that are doing some cool stuff and they wanted to help us put it out. Um, and I think people in this time are looking for something to distract them from all the madness. And uh, I know I am. I, I've been definitely getting into some crazy music lately. So. Yeah, like... I it ended up working out pretty good. Yeah, what do you... Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, what have you been doing to to distract yourself, to find a, a sense of... A, a little bit of normalcy? Man, so lately, I, my new thing is... I've been getting really into, like, bushcraft, which I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it's basically, like... You know, just making a bunch of stuff out of sticks and, uh, like camping, building tools. Just, I bought a bunch of books on, like, primitive trapping and hunting. Just really nerding out on some weird, primitive, uh, you know, tool building and stuff like that lately. That's been my new thing. Also, cumbia music. I've been really getting into Colombian cumbia music. Oh, yeah? So I've been going down the all this crazy old, like, Colombian golden cumbias. And uh, I've kind of got a weird obsession with cumbias and bushcraft right now. What I've got going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's really cool, though. I mean, like, the I, what I've found talking with people lately has been that they have been, like, filling their time that, obviously, you guys just released this record. You guys would be on tour right now playing shows. So like, what do you do with that time? A lot of these people have, have found, I don't want to say like, um, 
I don't know, like uh, not stuff that they've, what they've been doing is they've been finding stuff that is, um, I guess like scratching that artistic itch, you know, that creative itch and it may not be, but it's not necessarily always songwriting, you know what I mean? And I think that's like that, all of that kind of stuff helps out the art in general. You know, it's been a few oh, people yeah. have been oh, talking yeah, about sure. songwriting. Or I mean, I love I love doing anything with my hands anyway. You know, yeah. I think you know, art and music are so intertwined. I like making art, and I've always done like some collage work and some little stuff like that. But whenever I got into doing this bushcraft stuff, you're outside, you're in nature, even though it's hot, but you're just having this weird connection to uh, I don't know, man. It's like tapping into your ancestry or something, you know? Yeah. What well, also like how like, I think a lot of stuff like that when I'm w- been working with my hands, um, it feels like you're very focused on the task at hand. But then there's also like this aspect of being able to zone out and like think about other stuff at the same time. It's oh, this yeah, weird sure. mix where you're able to like be doing whatever it is and focusing and using a lot of brain power on whatever that is. But then also you're thinking about and processing other things that ends up where you're able to use that space for songwriting in a way, you know what I mean? Or like ideas, uh, s- story ideas and stuff like that. Has oh, that, has that happened for y'all or you? What's like the like the last thing that you kind of were like, oh shit, man, I need to write a song about this. Wait, sorry, say that again. I said like, what was like the last thing that you kind of have you have you gotten like an idea out of that? Like when you're doing this and like you're going, oh man, that's like a really great idea. I need to jot this one down to to work on later. Has any of that happened? Man, I can't really remember anything off the top of my head. Just kind of going through just, you know, reflecting on the past. I've been doing a bunch of that lately, just reflecting on where I came from and, you know, all the all the good times I've had with my family and growing up in the pain handle. And it's more like a reflection. I'm sure it's going to end up coming up in, the, in some of the new stuff we're writing. I've been writing like crazy. Um, we, we got 10 songs we're about to record next month. And then I have another batch, it's like a concept record in the can for after that too. And then I got a bunch of weird little solo stuff I've been doing. So it all comes out later. But I think while I'm doing these things, I'm kind of just processing, you know, growing up on the plains and being out there and kind of missing that area a lot because it's such a contrast from where I'm at now. Yeah. And uh, just thinking about that a lot lately. Well, you know, like, the, you grew up in, up here in the Panhandle. I always feel that, like, wherever you grow up, you kind of don't appreciate fully until you get somewhere else. Um, right. What What is it that you miss the most, other than, like, family, stuff like that? Is there Was there anything specific that you're just like, man, they just do oh, a little man, bit better I mean, back home? I, I definitely understand that, that concept, but it was never one of those things for me. I always loved playing you. You know, I, I love... I had so many good experiences growing up there, and I spent a lot of time with 
one of my best friends growing up in Olton, which is 20 miles west of Plainview. And I ended up farming for him for a while out of high school. And he's still, he's actually putting a bunch of hemp now. I guess they're starting to farm hemp out there, which is insane to think that <laughs> a conservative place <laughs> is now growing as much as hemp, hemp horns. But, uh, yeah, just, I mean, if you go out there at night, it's completely flat. It's just, I've been all over the country playing shows here and there, and we do a lot of camping because we're broke, so it's either sleep on somebody's floor and a bunch of cat hair or go camp out somewhere decent. So we try to camp out, and there's just nothing like the, the southern plains to me. Just, it's almost like you're out there on an ocean of dirt and you see the stars completely around you, all the way down to the earth, 360 degrees, and they're so bright. And, you know, when you're out there and young, and you might take some psychedelics or whatever you can be into. Just, it really just blows you away and sends you to another place. And you hear the coyotes off in the distance and it's just very cinematic out there. And I always really appreciated that. Yeah. What I always love about, even though like I'm from further down South and it's, it's still flat out there. I mean, like we don't have any trees like up here. Um, I always feel like it makes you feel incredibly small and that like is in this strange way kind of like reassuring like that yeah you're not gonna like even though you can you can have like a major impact it's not like you know where i don't know like you just feel small and it feels there's a little bit of comfort in that for some reason oh man that's a great way to put it that there is and now that we're on the subject i realize that i hate heavily wooded areas. I don't hate it. I appreciate it, especially being this bushcraft stuff. You need, you need to be able to build with. But you, it's very claustrophobic when you're growing up in such a spread out area. Yeah. I've, and I've, I think it's, it's, good to, it's good to feel small like that. It's good to be reminded that something, all this stupid shit that I'm worried about doesn't really matter because if you think about it, you're nothing. You know? Yeah, I've tried. I think to, everybody needs a reminder of that. Yeah, I've tried to explain that to people. Where I'm like, I know this sounds weird, but in like uh, places where there is like a bunch of woods or a lot of like hills and a lot of just urban development, even I'm like, man, it just feels claustrophobic here. Like I feel like I I'm not able to like fully breathe. You know, it's yeah. Out here, you're able to get like a a big you know, breathe deep. And I don't know, like it just, uh, even though there's a bunch of dirt and dust kicked up, it feels like you're just able to like spread out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's in our, our nature is to kind of crave being out there in the openness. Like you, that's why I think you see all these people moving out to Marfa and to Terrellingua and Santa Fe and Taos because they're tired of just being crammed in somewhere and, you know, being part of the, the crazy rat race so everybody's seeking some like primitive stuff out there. Yeah. You uh you mentioned farming earlier. I know that like Butch Hancock has talked about like his first record, that first record that he did, um, like he wrote all those songs while driving a tractor. And so they kind of have like that rhythm to him of of driving a tractor and it just it feels like that 
has happened a lot with your music too, that you can feel like this rhythm of, of cultivating the land. Did you do, did you do a whole lot of riding while, while farming out there or out here? Yeah, yeah, I definitely did. It's funny you mentioned that story. Uh, my buddy Julian was telling me about that story recently. And it's just such a great story uh, about him writing a song for the tractor because they were on a certain key, I believe, or something because of the home of the engine. Uh, I didn't really get, you know, as crazy as he did, but, I mean, it was definitely a huge impact. Because before, historically, I was writing, me and Andrew, our, the guitar player for Rattlesnake, you know, I've known him since high school. We were in a, a band that was very similar to 311 back in the day. <laughs> when we were super young, but uh, me and him had this band in Kansas, and we were just doing like very post-rock stuff. It was like basically mixing, you know, explosions in the sky with Mars Volta, like really intense, but also really open and post-rocky. But then we moved to Brooklyn, we were making music up there for a little bit, and we couldn't afford it, ran out of money, came back to Texas with our tails between our legs, and that's when I started farming for Eric, my buddy I grew up with. And just being out there, and there's no really reminder of the year. I was listening to a bunch of KDAV 1590 when it was in all its glory back then. Just being transported back to the 50s and 60s. Just being on the tractor working late nights, dipping a bunch of tobacco, and that's whenever I'd get home and just start writing these kind of weird things that ended up being rattlesnake, you know. I think I wrote all those songs while I was farming, or at least the majority of them while I was farming. Yeah, yeah. I remember the I've got that record, that Lapanza record here on my on my computer here. I Eaters, right? Oh, what is it? Oh yeah, you got that record? Yeah. Damn, Thomas with the deep cut. I know. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's like, awesome, dude. It's weird because it's um, back in the like. I've tried to explain. How like Lubbock, even though you can, there's there's a really there's a lot of like singer songwriters who have come out of here like Red right and Ross Cooper and people like that. Right. But this Lubbock used to be a lot more alt rock and a lot more just rock and roll in general, indie rock kind of stuff. And there used to be more um, places for that to to actually be played and listened to. It feels like there's not as many venues to. Um, that that do that kind of music anymore? Man, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because that's actually something else that we touch on is uh the scene that was going on kind of before, like during and before Rattlesnake Milk started was primarily happening at bashes on Broadway. Mm-hmm. The, the original batches before it got remodeled and it was really cool. I think Nirvana had played that stage at the Dragon. All these like crazy bands have played that little stage. The owner, Mike Fuqua, is a... Well, I don't want to get into that, but I'm not a fan of him. He ended up ruining it. But there were some legendary shows going down there. And these two guys in town, the Rana Brothers, they were bringing a bunch of really amazing bands like the OCs, Tyson, all these crazy surf like bands that are huge now that thinking about them playing bashes is insane. Yeah. Yeah. Like but, that. Uh, that was a huge part of the, 
the scene and Thrift Store Cowboys was like the bridge between that scene and the blue light scene. Right. So I knew Daniel. I, I met Daniel before I even knew he was in a band. He was always so nice and uh, so humble. You never thought this guy was like a rock star legend. And I saw Thrift Store play. I was blown away. Obviously, I was like, oh, man. Uh, this dude is the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. I, when I met Daniel, it was like, I guess it was at the Rouse Records on University. Um, and that's how I knew him first, just going to that record store and like looking around, going to the back and like looking for, I would always look for like stuff that I, <laughs> I couldn't find. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, it's like yeah. I know I'm going like, to, there's a chance that, or there's a great chance I'm never going to find what I'm looking for. But I'm gonna like still look, and then I'd find some good stuff. Like I found like a, a Smith single there one time, that like they, I can't remember who was at the front. They're like, you're never gonna be able to find anything like that here, you know. And I found it like in the one of those back closets. But, um, anyways, like that's where I met Daniel first, and then like I remember hearing about Thrift Store Cowboys, but it was so much. I think like the first time I heard them, it had to be like finding their MySpace page or something like that. And cause there was no Spotify. There was no, like iTunes music was a lot different back then. And right. then when you like kind of connect the dots, then it's like, Oh man. Yeah. It was, uh, I talked with Daniel a couple, I guess it was about a month ago for a podcast interview. We talked a lot about the, those old days. Yeah. I listened to that. That was great, man. I, I remember him telling me a couple of stories and, drinking whiskey it was good to hear him, hear him talk about a lot of stuff yeah going back to yeah. like the, the indie rock scene kind of thing here I think like bringing in all of these bands because I remember like um, even just like it felt like there was more music even Monday through Friday or Monday through Thursday happening and that's like the really like a lot of the times where these bands coming through town would have to play Lubbock for one of those dates because it's hard. Like, why are you going to play Lubbock on a Saturday when you can play a bigger market on a Saturday or Friday? So like, that's when, right. um, but I, I think like the, the bigger point on all that is like these touring bands coming through meant that there was a, a lot of, uh, or a space for local bands to open. And that meant like there is more bands happening and, uh, just out of necess- necessity. Yeah, dude. Yeah, for sure. Do you I remember? Mean, we there were so many bands, local bands at that time. I mean, I, I think a big part of that was the the nine uh, eighty was it eighty eight one KTXT, the student run radio station at Tech. Yeah, I mean, I think we had like a hundred DJs there, and we were you know, none of us were paid. There was just like a big group of like-minded people that were into, you know, drinking a lot and going to shows. And, you know, a huge percentage of those people probably played instruments. So they started bands and everybody was finding each other's bands. And uh, it was like a, I don't know, this weird conglomeration of just everybody helping each other out, playing these little opening slots for bands touring through. And I mean, for a while there, there was, you know, there'd be three, four shows a week at Batches, and they're all good. So, 
that's a lot of open spots for bands to fill. And they created this environment where people were just willing to throw some songs together and not worry about them being masterpieces, but just getting together with friends and have fun and going out there and performing, which is really cool. Yeah. You know what's weird too is like I never um I never thought about like those bands in the future. Like I never thought about and I mean that in like now there's a lot of those bands where I'm like, man, I wish I had like a copy of like something. I don't even like there's so many that didn't do like full length records or anything, maybe like an EP or like an online EP or or I, like a digital right. I guess. Or yeah. you a could find like the, MySpace. Yeah, like the MySpace thing. I that's where like I felt like you could fall into that rabbit hole. And you can still do it. Like there's a lot of those pages still up. But sometimes like the music yeah. just does not load or it takes forever to load. So you just have to leave the page up. I've done that though. Like there's just been there's been so many of those I'm trying to think of like even some one of my favorite bands was do you remember uh um the band Coppola or Coppola? Oh yeah, Coppola. Yeah, who was in that? Uh, Corey Ames, or yeah, Corey Ames was like the drummer, I believe, and I can't remember who else was in. Oh right, yeah. It was such a like it was like a little three piece, and it was like just some like really great garage rock kind of stuff happening. Yeah, dude, I remember that. Corey's in a lot of bands too. He played with one one of my favorite bands during that time. Rubber Band. Did you ever see the Rubber Band? No, I guess not. No. Yeah, he played drums, and it was two sisters, uh, Amber and Jordan Davis, and they just had the, the most amazing voices ever. They all, I mean, they they have multiple sisters, and they're all super talented. They're, they're originally from Chicago, I think, and Jordan just, like, hopped a bus down to Lovett one day. But their voices are just so beautiful, man, and uh, it was always a treat for them and play. Yeah. Yeah, like the... I mean, it, that whole scene was just crazy. Me and Andrew, we reconnected in San Marcos. I, w- I was going to Texas State, and he was just, you know, making music and chilling. We started making some music. And uh, I think he decided to move home, and I was thinking about going back to be closer to the family, so I applied to Tech, and was going to go back to Tech. And... Uh, we ended up just, you know, meeting so many people so quick that we're playing shows and just got really inspired to start making, like, taking it to the next level and getting some songs down and stuff. It was just crazy seeing all these people hanging out together, playing shows together. Um, I don't know, I was just so blown away by it. It was very special. Yeah. One of the... You got to tell the a little bit of the, um, I guess like maybe the first time I had heard about you guys or, or you specifically, it was because like there was a, a news story about uh, Bill Murray coming to one of y'all South by Southwest shows when you had a, a different oh. band. Yeah, dude. That was a great show. Uh, it was our band Psychic Flowers. We played at South by, and uh, I've never really been to too many shows in Austin and we ended up booking like some crazy amount like nine shows Sam and Burgers just knew all these people because so many Austin bands would come through and play Lubbock on like you said just some getting through to the west coast or coming back from the west coast that you know meeting all these 
these bands from Austin, they're doing their little South Blood House shows. So we just doing all the, we did like nine or 10 shows in two days. And one of them was a bridge show super late at night, a pedestrian bridge where they just like set up a little PA system on the power to legally. We didn't think it was really going to be anything crazy, but we show up and there's like 200 people there and the cops show up and they're trying to shut it down and it was our turn to play and I go on to go set up and all the people are gathered around and like the cop walks up and he's just like, don't play or we're going to have to take you to jail. And I look at the guys and I'm just like, uh, let's just do it. And we just started jamming, man. It was, it was, it was pretty hilarious. None of us went to jail, <laughs> luckily, but yeah, it, was a, it was a good time. But yeah, Bill Murray was there just chilling, watching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like what I remember is I guess so. like obviously no, wasn't ahead. I obviously wasn't there, but like I remember there being like a a news clip about that. <laughs> That's oh, when yeah, I, I first I saw it. Yeah. They interviewed me. I remember <laughs> I sounded so fucking stupid. It's like <laughs> I was just like, it's the best night ever. Ever. I think that's that's probably all I said, but something like that. It's pretty funny. Yeah, like it, I don't know. It was probably like a like a forty minute clip or something like that, like a minute or like a forty second something like that clip. I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's like the first time I like I'd ever seen you guys, and I was like, "Well, if Bill Murray says it." Like, and then then that's like the the hunt to like try and actually like hear the music in your room, you know, looking on your whatever desktop you have, going through the MySpace pages and uh. I don't even know if, like, did you guys ever have anything on Bandcamp or anything like that? Did we ever have any what? Anything on Bandcamp? I don't know if, like, Bandcamp was really running as... Yeah, as so, yeah, I think we did. Yeah, we had the, the Ponda stuff on Bandcamp. Not, not... Yeah, I think we had Psychic Flowers on Bandcamp, too. And we had Naked Picture stuff on Bandcamp. So that was kind of like the three main bands we were doing at that time. And then I, I ended up doing some demos of the Rattlesnake Milk songs. And I was living either with my grandparents in Lubbock or my parents in Plainview for a, a small amount of time. And I came into town with a CD of those demos and headed over to Daniel Fluitt's house. And it was like Daniel Fluitt, Daniel Markham from Warren Wolf, and Zach, who was obviously like in Brandon Adams' band and Warren Wolf and Go to Hell, pretty much like all of my favorite bands. Uh, I think Alan Brown's probably there. And uh, I just put, I was just like, hey, if y'all want to hear some shit I've been working on, do the CD. And, and Zach was like, dude, I'll play drums. And that was just kind of it. And then we just started. Zach, if it wasn't for Zach, it wouldn't have what it is. Because the demos sound a lot different. I was just kind of playing it for Tom and the Snare. And it was kind of more rockabilly, like Buddy Holly style, because I was listening to a lot of 50 stuff. So. And me and Zach got together to jam the first time. He just threw that signature Zach Davis train beat and just we just started flying like I mean I think we Zach's so good man. We had I think we got nine songs done that first practice and he knew every every break, every course, every stop and we were just like, Oh no shit, we got something here. Let's try to find some other guys to play with. Yeah. Pretty like cool. 
This episode is sponsored by Wicker's Mesquite Smoked Jalapeno Jelly. It's owned and operated by my buddy Wes Wicker, who makes the jelly in small batches for the best quality and freshness. He smokes the peppers with mesquite and uses pure cane sugar to make the jelly. What you get is this great blend of smoky, sweet, and spicy. It's addictively savory. For those uninitiated, Wicker's is a great addition to any chef's kitchen. Part of what makes Wicker's so great is just how versatile it really is. For starters, it makes a great meat glaze. Throw it on a batch of hot wings, use it on some pork ribs, some pork chops, really whatever you can think of. Eat it on biscuits, cornbread, bagels, or toast. Throw it on a ham or turkey sandwich. Another super simple but effective way is to get some cream cheese, throw some wickers on top, and then grab your favorite cracker. Wickers is currently stocked at a handful of places in Lubbock and on the South Plains, as well as some Fort Worth and DFW locations. But the easiest way to get your hands on a jar is to head over to wickerstx.com. That's W-I-C-K-E-R-S-T-X.com. I'll throw a link into the show notes for good measure. They currently come in two varieties, original and now hot, if you need just a little bit more kick in your bite. You can order anything from one jar to a case of 12, whatever fits your needs. Again, that's wickerstx.com. Okay, back to the show. Whenever, whenever I first heard Rattlesnake Milk, it felt like where um, it felt like just so much more earthy. It, it, it felt like you, there was a, I think, I think that first record y'all did, it's a little bit more rockabilly. It does have a little bit more of that. Um, right. Feel. Yeah. And this one feels a lot more, I don't even know. Like there's still like that, that it's, there's that rockabilly thing at the heart, at the core, but this one feels like you guys just are, um, I don't know, like it, it feels like you're embracing a little bit more of what West Texas is where that first one felt like you guys were more traveling around. Yeah. Cause I feel like that. Yeah. That first one. Go ahead. Yeah. The second, the second one's definitely, you know, I think a lot more mature, you know, we just kind of figured out like, I mean, I think my ultimately my approach has always been, especially with the second one, is just make it sound like clumsy or where I'm from. I was just obsessed, especially moving away from there. Um, obsessed with kind of capturing the way that landscape makes me feel. You know, sometimes it hits the mark and sometimes it's way off of the mark, but that's, I can't control that. You know, you just kind of throw some shit at the wall and hope that it sticks, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that but, first record, like, I know you guys reference a whole lot of, like, tour and stuff as far as, like, traveling across, like, Arizona, New Mexico kind of thing, California. And here, like, a lot of these songs are rooted in, like, Abernathy, obviously. Like, you and you reference Plainview and a few other small towns up around here a bunch more. Um, were, are, are any of these songs, like, actually inspired by people you know around here? Yeah, I draw a lot. Yeah, I draw a lot from kind of like folk folklore, you know, like panhandle folklore. Like everybody knows these crazy people. And like Plainview has a, a weird reputation for being, you know, kind of wild, reckless. Like growing up around just some crazy, 
you know, you have your crazy rodeo guys, you got your, you know, your meth people, and you got just like, a, a, just a, there's always like a slight, a little bit of jet danger when you're in plain view is kind of what it feels like, especially at nighttime, especially in high school when everybody starts drinking, people are getting stabbed with screwdrivers and ran over. It's just like a, it's a weird place. So growing up and, you know, hearing stories about these people, meeting meeting these people and experiencing a lot always comes out. I, have, I mean, this next record that we're doing, I got to kind of really hone in on some families that I know that really made an impact on me just from stuff that they went through that I, I saw, you know, their kids that I grew up with going through, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, like on this record, like the song Abernathy, obviously that's like right. the, the, the the record opener. And it feels like very, like obviously this is, that song's about um, being drafted into the, the Vietnam War and like right after getting married and like thinking that your life is going to be, you know, complete, like it's, this is how we're going. And then all of a sudden getting a draft letter is just like a wrench thrown in the middle of it. Um, I don't know. Like I felt like that, the way that record or the way that song opens up, like you can just feel like the, the traveling of that letter hitting that person. You know what I mean? Um, where, I guess like, where were you first at? Like, where was that song first kind of that's that story that, that narrative hit you. What, when, how are you, when did you first start working? Man, so I think my approach to songwriting is probably a lot different than most people because I, I'm growing up, I, I never really focused on lyrics. I was never a lyrics guy. I was real feeling head, heavily emotion driven and melody. Like melody and feeling are two of the most important things to me. So I was never really, you know, I might know 20% of the words, but I never really paid attention too much. And, it, and then that really comes across on La Ponza, Psychic Flowers, Naked Pictures, and the first Rattlesnake Milk record in particular. Because the first Rattlesnake Milk record, I feel like, doesn't really talk about anything. It's just kind of like wordplay and kind of making things fit and just like real light subject matter. But, uh... On the second one, we write the songs. I have the melody in my head, and we probably played those shows, those songs live. I'm not exaggerating. Sixty times before I even had words. So every time we'd go up there, I'd just start making up words just on the spot. And I pretty much do that with all my songs. I just kind of make them up, make up the words as we go live, and eventually that starts molding in. And as I'm going to the gig or afterwards or whatever, I'll start like kind of developing that storyline further and further. So it might be like a real basic, vague idea, and then it just kind of works itself out after playing them live. Obviously, that we can't do that right now because of the pandemic, so I'm going to have to approach it a little bit different. But I think that the song just kind of came together. I had an idea about two people falling in love in Olton, where I farm, because it's just, in my head, it's like the perfect place. And... uh I think I was probably watching Apocalypse Now, which is my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies. And uh, so, yeah, that'd be kind of a weird twist if he yeah, was going to Vietnam or something like that. It's probably just started 
going from there. Yeah, like it feels like it, it, that song. It felt so real that it, I knew in my heart it had to be like it was like your uncle or something. You know, like that's how real it felt. Like, cause it, like it feels uh, like yeah. You know, it's there's nothing. Well, my my Mexican uncle went to Vietnam, but it's not about him. He he always told me growing up that he got he's like Mijo, look, this is a bullet hole. But my mom told me later that he was lying. He never he never been shot him. Obviously, like there's a the 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 song Dave Dudley, which most people know as you know him playing like truck stop or truck trucker kind of country. I always love like that kind of like eighteen wheeler kind of country songs. I thought Sturgill was going to start doing a little bit more of that after that meta modern. There was like a little bit of that happening on there. Yeah, man, I'm a I'm a huge Dave Dudley fan. And I was kind of just paying homage to him. I got my CDL a couple years ago, randomly for this job. And was almost going to be like a full-fledged truck driver and ended up not doing it. But one of my best friends, Kobe, Hatch up there in Plainview, I grew up with him and his brothers. They started a little trucking business. That one was, I just, you know, I pretty much had that idea from the get-go. I think me and Brad, uh, Brad Ivy, our bass player, um, we had probably just like ran it drunkenly, super drunkenly words for that. I think originally the chorus was had something to do with two stepping on a flatbed, but it wasn't exactly how it is now, but it was probably hilarious. And then it just kind of turned into what it is now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like this record right here, like again, even though like it, you saying like that first record, less serious. It's almost like we're like no real narratives that, that, that really right I've been thinking about that since you've said that um it's almost like that first one is more based on like idioms or like expressions like some of the stuff that like really sounds cool and like putting it to to music because like there is a little like even like the title you know snake rattle and roll a little bit more of like a homage to like idiom kind of used and this one's a little bit more like narrative based yeah yeah I think this one we're just trying to get a little more serious you know mm-hmm. yeah just kind of tighten tighten everything up you know trying I, I mean I, we went through so many years of not putting anything out and we'd play live and people would just be like oh man we'd love to you know get your record we'd be like well unfortunately we don't have it and then we'd see him again at the next show and be like, hey, I checked out your stuff on Spotify and I didn't like it. <laughs> because they were, <laughs> they, were just, they were watching a completely different band than what that first record sounded like. So we really wanted to put the money into capturing how, how it sounds new. And that's why we recorded here in Lockhart where we live um, at this good band studio, which is a really, really nice studio, but... Also really expensive, you know? Yeah. Um, that one hurt, hurt the pockets. <laughs> uh, well, you know, like, it's also a lot more cinem- cinematic. It feels like there's a lot more of that that post-rocky-ness. Um, I, I always think that, like, especially on those last two Thrift Store Cowboys records, they're not like a post-rock band, but, like, there's a lot of those elements happening in those 
songs. Right. Um, how how like is that like how big of a influence has has like a band like that being that they're from around this area? How much has that had like an influence on wanting to capture what's what the sound of of the Panhandle is? Oh Portland? man, I mean, if you if you're asking me, you know, if how big of an impact thrift stories to us, it's you know, they're like, they're like gods to us, in a sense, you know? I mean, me and Andrew, we all, always love super reverby, spacey stuff anyway. And whenever we heard Thrift Store adding that element to their music, doing what they do, just we just couldn't believe it, you know? Especially, like, seeing those guys at house parties and knowing how nice they were and seeing that they are making this amazing you know, super cinematic, soundscaping, you know, poetic country. It's just, I think, I mean, I, I love Flatlanders. I love Terry Allen. I love Butch Hancock. I love all those those traditional level guys. But, you know, that thrift store, Lay Little White Crawling and Creeping, that's, that to me captures the sound of Hook and Post and Punk View and all those little towns where all my family's from. I actually, I got a, a lot of my Mexican family from Post, and I think Daniel told me one time that he grew up listening to my Uncle Benny sing harmonies at church, which was a kind of crazy connection. But yeah, I mean, I think that's just, they're, they're a special group, man. They were doing stuff back then that was, even not even just the music, just the way they were touring. They, they had a real band, they had merch, they had records, they had shirts, they had... You know, a booking agent. Daniel, he uh, he was kind of like a, a mentor, almost. Just he had so much insight and you know how to. I don't know. It was just like tapping into this crazy resource that I really, you know, didn't even understand how great it was until you kind of look back on it. Yeah, like you know what I think the one of like the most important parts of a thrift store and of, of and uh daniel markham too and ba is like they kind of like gave you give gave like the the their peers and like the people coming right after them like the this like strange confidence this like allowance to hey you can you don't have to try and be on the radio or you know what i mean you don't have to fit these boxes like you can write about music about this area that tries to sound like this area and it's okay. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, you I mean, oh, go ahead. I could just, I could speak all those guys with praises all day. Those guys, they've always been so good to me, man. And, uh, all the band things so highly of them. Red, red as well. Red's been super red to us and him and Parker boys. You know, reached out to help out, and uh, yeah, I guess Daniel also. But I guess I kind of mentioned earlier, he was like the bridge to the blue light. Like we'd have been in like the punk and surf, you know, garage rocky scene over there in Bashes on where us weirdos hung out. We always knew blue light existed, but it was kind of one of those, oh, you don't go over there, you know. It was just it was a completely different scene. But it wasn't until you know 
Daniel asked us to go do blue lights for them. I believe one was one of the first times we played, and then you know we met Lance, and those guys were super rad with us and seemed to like like it and asked us to come back. So that yeah. was that weird bridge between the two. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, traditionally, like uh, the blue light was like back in the back when it was first opened, like in the nineties, late nineties, and early two thousands. It was a lot more just like straight and narrow Texas country. Like that's all they, they did. And it was um, way more like that. And if it's since um, Lance and Dustin six and Derek have gotten it, especially since they've gotten it um, like it, they've kind of spread out to liking not because they've always liked a lot of music, but you know, it, they're a lot more open to, just your, I hate to use this term Americana, but like a lot more of that kind of sound where, you know, it's, that's why they've been able to get guys like you in guys like your traditional Texas country, but then also, you know, guys like Jason Isbell have played, you know, so it's, it's, it's a lot more of a diverse country sound. Right. Definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, also the thing back then with the blue light is that's we we dressed a certain way that wasn't necessarily too welcome at blue light, and you'd go over there and maybe get a picture of beer cracked over your head. Next thing you know, you're fighting four or five cowboys. You know, that's just <laughs> the blue light has also it's just part of part of being in love because a lot of people drinking, including us, and getting fights. That's what we did a lot of the time back then. So it was just kind of like, hey, we'll stick to our side over here, and y'all kind of let y'all do y'all's thing over there. Yeah. And Daniel also was kind of a bridge between them, like maybe feel more accepted for being different over there. Yeah. Like the one of the the best shows I remember happening was it was uh, Daniel's going away show, and it was like basically like all of like all these bands that were. I think like everyone was local, um, except like oh, Randy Parker, was, I guess technically, show, but dude. you know, it was like all these bands that like Daniel had ties to all playing blue light on a Sunday. So it was like you guys, BA, um, red. Um, yeah, that's the like, first time I ever saw red play or net red. And uh, I was blown away. He was playing like some more bluesy sort of stuff back then, like kind of fancier blues. It was, it was still so good, man. Yeah, like he, he yeah, the, back then, because I don't, I guess that was a little bit more uh, his old band, Red on the Vitals, which was a little bit more bluesy. There was a lot more of that bluesy kind of streak going. Yeah. Um, you know who I've always thought like had like the best band name was. Yeah, isn't that is that the show where they ended up doing our Transformer and everybody had their shirts off on stage? Yeah, yeah, that was the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was but, hilarious. What I was gonna say is like who also played that show? Who I think he he's had who like, did? Stephen St. Clair. Oh yeah, yeah, Stephen. Yeah. Yeah, but like I'm saying, like his his old band. Almost Cowboys was like the best band name. That's like the best band name I've heard that 
just didn't have like who ever made it. Man, I'd love me some Steven Sinclair. That's that's a good dude, man. Great songwriter too. Yeah. Well, he's another. Where's a a record at? You know, like that's a hard record. You have to like basically. Yeah, that's that's true, man. Steven was one of the first guys I met in Lubbock, actually. Oh yeah. He was good friends with Amber, Amber and Jordan uh, in the brother band that I mentioned. We hung out with him one night right when we first moved. He's always just so nice. I think him and Amber were roommates or something. Man, being from Lubbock's crazy. It's crazy seeing the, the town change. You know, I, I lived in Plainview, but all my Mexican families from Lubbock, so I spent, you know, every other weekend there. We'd always have our big parties there every Easter where my aunt, she used to be a kind of famous Tejano singer back in Lubbock back in the day, so... Her band would come by, and all their family would come by over there on, in North Lubbock in the barrio, and it'd be cooking up tripas, and everybody's dancing, just like really heavy, good music vibes. And that's just like one story of one family, you know. I think Lubbock's already always kind of been a place just to cultivate music, you know. I mean, obviously Buddy Holly, even back in back then, you know. Yeah. Well, I think like you know it. Traditionally, music has been something to to uh, get out of like working, like hard actual like working hard labor. And out here, you know, that means right. You know, oh, I'm you start playing music so you don't have to farm or work at your dad's whatever or you know what I mean. And there's really Lubbock. I guess like the culture here has has been cultivated around music because, or art in general, kind of because it's so far away from everywhere else and there's less to, there was less to do. You know, you're drinking or playing music or, you know, both. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Man. And also, there's just not, nothing else to do there. You know, you get drunk, you work, and you probably get underpaid. And uh, you probably, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but we were living... We lived off 15th for a few years in the Haunted Castles, what we called it, three stories in the basement. I think there were seven, six of us living at there, or seven at one point, and I think the entire rent was $900. So we were all paying like $125. And just, you know, making as much music as possible and drinking as much beer and whiskey as possible and just kind of pushing the, pushing the levels of, you know, balancing out, surviving, making music, you know? Yeah. I, I'm just thinking about this right now. This episode is sponsored by the Blue Light Live, my all-time favorite music venue and bar. As you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has been difficult on small businesses, music venues, bars, and musicians. There are a handful of ways that you can help, though. For starters, go over to www bluelightlubbock.com click on the merch tab at the top of the page and order yourself a blue light hat t-shirt and koozie second if you haven't purchased monday night lights a 50 song compilation of lubbock songwriters organized by songwriter and photographer extraordinary charlie stout and myself head over to www.mondaynightlights.com the proceeds of this 50 song collection go directly to the bartending staff We launched it a few months back, and we were blown away by the response and reception. And of course, if you're just hearing about it now, go ahead and get it today. 
This collection will never be on iTunes or on Apple Music, so the only spot you'll be able to get it at is at mondaynightlights.com. I'll throw both links into the show notes for easy access. All right, back to the show. How much do you think the, uh, the fact that like Lubbock used to be dry had an influence on pushing people to, to music Man, venues that's and crazy. stuff? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. You don't really even appreciate being able to go into the, go into the store as much. Uh, you know, I kind of liked it better. It was something that was like a little adventure. <laughs> Drive out to the strip, go see, you know, VA at Docks or wherever he was working. Grab some beers, grab some liquor, and then you don't have to go back out. I mean, I, I see the argument that it's, it's safer to be able to get it down the street, too. So Yeah. It's, it's just so weird. But I also, man, it was... You know, you go out there and it looks like Las Vegas on the strip back in those days. And, you know, we tried some plain views to go get news in high school because plain view was a dry county, so you couldn't even buy it anywhere there. So we'd go to Lubbock and, you know, you pull up with the guys and maybe smoking a joint. And then you see these crazy Las Vegas lights down that whole strip. And you're just like, wow, this, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's what's so strange now is that it's uh, liquor stores in town is is normalized now. Like you, you would never know the difference because there's one like every few blocks now, and yeah. it's so because when I grew up in Fort Stockton, you could buy liquor in town, and uh, when I moved up here, it was like, wait, what? Wait, wait, why? Why is that the case? Like what? <laughs> it was like there's such a a weird cultural shock i guess like yeah well why you're lying right like the first time you hear it you're you think it's like a joke or something but <laughs> yeah it's, it's crazy what you can't buy liquor here you know what's crazy is like in arizona you can buy liquor at the gas station 24 hours a day and on sundays yeah i think that's in the New first go too the first time we went out there i was like what are you kidding me this is crazy Go ahead and give me one of those uh, wild turkeys or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that's it's such a I don't know. There's just such a, a strangeness around like our our yeah. alcohol consumption in this country, where like some people, some states, it's just like accepted, and then other states, it's like I, I feel like anytime you try and like outlaw something. People want it more because it's it's hard to get and it's considered taboo or whatever and looked down upon. But I don't know. I feel like that. I feel like with Lubbock being so conservative, conservative, it's made like the art population here, even though it's been it's typically been so small, a lot more tight knit, and that's meant a lot more creative juices come out because like you realize you have all these peers. Yeah, cult, it's cultivating a weird sense of creativity out there. Yeah, you feel, I mean, that's a, that's like a very distinct film that we always had in Lubbock is like feeling like an outsider. That's part of it. Yeah. If you're, if you're not married by the time you're 20 or 22 or 23, you don't have kids, you're making music, you're going to the bars, you're, 
you know, you're not just doing it, you're doing it with every ounce in you. And it shows by the way you walk around and by the way you dress and everything else. You know, you feel like an outlaw. People look at you different everywhere you go. I mean, that's good. That's good to feel like an outlaw and to feel like you are special and you can make something different. And it just kind of fuels that fire. Yeah. I wonder, like, how it is, how it was back in the day. Because, like, I know, like, Terry Allen and, like, the Flatlanders, I, I think we, like, we think of them all hanging out together back when they were growing up or something. But it wasn't necessarily the case. It was they didn't really know each other, especially, like, Terry and, yeah. and the other guys because he he's a little bit older. But then coming back, I, I know Terry's talked about, like, coming back from going to school, coming back from California, and, like, hearing about guys like Joe playing and being like, oh, well, I need. To, I guess I need to meet these guys, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a that's such a weird time to think about back then. I mean, I'm sure it was so cool to been a fly on the wall. Those guys hanging out. You know? Yeah. Have you you've you've have you seen have you seen those pictures of that tornado fest Joe Ely put on? Yeah, like that's the, the tornado jam. Yeah. I know there was a few, they did a couple of years of that. And um, I, I know like one of the reasons why they said they they canceled it was because the city of Lubbock was complaining about these crowds like stomping out like the buffalo grass. And it's like, y'all realize there was a bunch of buffalo. <laughs> like it, there's a reason why it's called buffalo grass and like, all these buffalo didn't ever stomp it out. So you're telling me like a once yeah. a year concert is like, what are you talking about? Like you just don't want the music here. You don't want the problems. But he he brought in, I guess like you know there is uh, he brought in like Linda Ronstadt one year, and like Stevie Ray Vaughan, and like obviously like the Mains cool. Brothers. and like Terry Allen and the Panhandle Mystery Band. A lot of bands like that. That's it would have been wild to, to be there. Man, they, we got to bring that back. Hey, New Swing, dude, sponsored by New Swing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe so. You've, you, you've hung out with Joe before, haven't you? There's a little bit of yeah, connection. I, I, did a, I worked for Joe and Sharon for a little while here in Austin, just a couple weeks. Brad, our, our old bass player, he did as well. Uh, I don't think we ever did it at the same time, but uh, their daughter Marie was our tour manager. One little tour we did to the West Coast, and uh, she was just like, "Yeah, my parents need some help. If you want to come work out out here at the ranch," and I was like, "Oh yes, definitely." Man, it was they're so nice. I think the, the first time the whole band went over there, Joe was just walking around the yard feeding turkeys, wild turkey like corn, and, and he played some pool with us and was just telling us all the stories right off the bat just super sweet and his wife Sharon is just so amazing she has so many good stories as well I've had a couple nights around the fire with they drinking tequila and she's was always good just good they love people from Lola too you know yeah <laughs> everybody that ends up around this area people from Lola we got a special there's that special bond that exists you know? Yeah, 
one of the stories I heard about the tornado jam was um, I'm trying to think of who told me. I, okay, so I think Wait, what one of the stories about, who? about the tornado jam stuff oh, gotcha. was yeah. like the night before they were going to perform the night before tornado jam that day or whatever, like Linda Ronstadt and all these people were in town and that they were looking for a place to go hang out and play. And, um, there was like a end of the year, like graduation bash thing happening at, happening at the cotton club. And they're like, Oh, well let's go over there. Let's go play. And so like they, this graduating class of whatever school had rented out the place and here comes like Terry Allen and uh, Joe Ely and Linda Ronstadt and they go up on stage and like start performing and playing and I guess they had like a, there had been like a house band or something playing. That's why they were able to play or whatever. And um, the the guy who had like, who had the place had only been paid to um, rent out the to stay open basically until midnight, and so when midnight came, he he shut the breakers down on on them on stage. Oh man! I'm t- I'm telling you, it's like how much of a, like a fucking loser do you have to be to just like shut the breakers down on <laughs> yeah. Linda Ronstadt? Like, come yeah. on! Just <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. They did that. What a lucky class. Yeah. Yeah, but that's also like very very much a Lubbock story. Like you can just envision that happening in Lubbock because it's such a, yeah, all these weird or all this, like this eclectic group of people coming together, playing a show just on happenstance of like, Hey, let's spontaneous trip. They're being a graduating class. And then the guy who has the building open, shutting everything down because he's not paid till after or after midnight, you know, (laughs) (laughs) gotta follow the rules here. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when was like the yeah. first time you there's ever? A of, there's a lot of weird little stuff like that that happens. Yeah. Around Austin, man. Like, uh, there's like a lot of people the hockey towns I go to that you know just never know. Sometimes some random people pop in. It's pretty cool. There's yeah. a lot of good. There's a lot of good. I got Austin's got a real bad rap for just being snooty and all this stuff that I hear talk, people talk about all the time, which I totally get. I, I hated Austin before I came up down this way. But uh, one thing that you, you have to admit is there's a lot of good music that goes down here. If you like watching music like I do, it's not a bad place to be. Yeah. Well, that's like any place you can do the stereotype about. And it feels like it, to really, you're basing all that off of where like you're you're seeing that from afar or you're seeing it from you know a couple of nights in whatever town and you don't right, get like yeah. you get you get a, a warped sense with that you got to like spend some time cuz like Lubbock obviously gets a bunch of people think this is you know the edge of the earth or something out here and oh, yeah. you know yeah. you you spend a couple of weeks up here and that's how you know a place you know cuz like any well, of these... Yeah, it was, it's kind of like Red, too. When Red said on your podcast, uh, you know, Lubbock's the biggest little town in the Panhandle. I think Austin's like the biggest little town in Texas because even though there's a lot of bands, all the scenes are very niche, you know? So each little corner of the music scene 
everybody knows each other and everybody's probably dated somebody's girlfriend and family and it's just the same as any other little place, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah. I was I was gonna say too though, like Nashville gets like a, a bad rap about the um oh, it's only you know, everyone wants to be a, a top forty kind of country star and it's all bro country and it's like, no. They've got like so right. much other great music happening there too. Um, oh yeah, there's so some, it's, there's some awesome bands up there, man. Some of my favorite bands up there—they're more rock and roll than country, but they, they, they got a cool scene up there. Yeah, well, I I know up there, I think like who really broke down. I, I'm sure it's it's always been like where there's a lot of like other rock and roll stuff happening or alt country. I'm sure that's always the case, but in the last. I don't know, like 20 years or so, the people who have really broke down that barrier barrier of, or that stereotype have been guys like Jack White and Dan Arbach because they, they're both up there and they're not playing yeah. country. You know, they're, they're frontmen for two of the biggest bands we've had in our, our life, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, for a little while there was like, I think it was right around the time Natural Child like got huge. Or, you know, I guess not huge, but really big. There's so many people moving up to Nashville just to like being bands that sounded like Natural Child and Jeff Brotherhood and mm-hmm. uh, just like some some stuff like that that was being made. And next thing you know, there's a bunch of bands coming out of there that are similar, but they have their own twist and it's pretty cool stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna ask you, like, when did you, like, I guess, like, first hear somebody like Terry play, or like the Flatlanders? You remember when about that was? Flat, uh, about who did you say first? Oh, like, who did you like? When do you remember the, like the first time you heard Terry Allen or any of those older guys? Man, so I think the first time I heard about the Flatlanders was Daniel Fluid. He was telling a story about he was talking to somebody. I remember like it was yesterday and he said, the Flatlanders are the type of guys that would come to your party and drink all your whiskey. And he was saying that to somebody and I was like, man, those guys sound pretty cool. Who are they? <laughs> and I, I'm pro- I probably asked asked him and he just told me or ended up looking it up later. But I never listened to him. I was just like, oh, they're, they're like the biggest band to come out of love with. They're these legends. Um, so I think I bit torn into a record one time when I was driving to Dallas to see my family, my dad's side of the family, and I put it on. And I, I guess in my head, I was picturing the flat one just to sound like rattlesnake milk or something like a train beat, like this this kind of quintessential sound of what I feel like the flat one sounds like. And then I was like, whoa, this is completely not what I thought at all. And it took me a little bit. The first time I was just like, oh, I'm not too crazy about it. And then I got, I think I started listening to the Odessa tapes. And this was probably eight years ago. And then I was just blown away. And the Odessa tapes to me is just so good. It's one of my favorite. I listen to that record to the wheels fall off. I love that. I love that record so much. Yeah. Like that's, uh, like back, like it's weird because they've, they've also, they've obviously made records since like they broke up, like there's a couple of those records that came out in the 2000s. And that to me doesn't feel like the same Flatlanders as like what you would have seen back in the the seventies. 
So like the Odessa tapes is very, very much more of a representation of that. And right. is it, isn't that like, doesn't it have like them playing like a, the singing song? Well, yeah. And I, stuff like that? Pretty, I think if I'm not mistaken, the Odessa tapes, they recorded in like 72. And then they basically broke up and went all their separate ways. I think Joe like went and joined the circus. It was like, you know, a, a, a carny kind of just traveling the country with carnivals. And uh, I think Jimmy went moved to Austin to do his career and Bush moved somewhere or something. And then uh, 10 years later, they're like, oh, we have all this record. We should put it out. I, I think it ended up coming. Then they went to the studio and recorded more Legend of the Band, which is basically all those demo, a lot of those demos off the desk tapes. I probably butchered that story, but it's something along those lines. But they just always had a, a weird way of getting together and making music. Yeah. Well, also, it's um, kind of what I've read is that I think now, like, you kind of think of them as being, like, you think of, like, Joe Ely being a little bit more of, like, the front man, I guess. Because, like, his, you, we're also, like, basing this off of him having this really great solo career, you know, opening up for The Clash and shit. And right. back when they first started, it wasn't like him having, like, he wasn't, like the the singer he is is now, you know, it, it's uh, there's a reason why it was called like Jimmy Dale and the the Flatlanders, you know, because he was more of the voice, and it feels like those that ten years or whatever that run is that that Joe really found his his footing on like what kind of performer he was wanting to be. Yeah. I don't um, know. Yeah, they all they they each have their own special little part in that group, man. Mm-hmm. For sure, you can tell. Like, I'm not. I'm a huge fan of all the Bush songs that he writes and Jimmy's voice, the way Joe sings harmonies. Like when they're together, it's truly something special for sure. And they're all. I mean, they're all great individually as well. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and th- some of those records are like hard to find, like some of their solo stuff. Like I know, like a lot of the Wait, say, say that again. I said a lot of some of their like their solo stuff is hard to find, especially like from Butch. Like you have to really dig, or you order them on Amazon and pay overpriced pay, uh, prices from some yeah. CD store yeah. from in Europe or something. I don't know. Sometimes there's super expensive. Man, have shit. you ever heard Joe's? Uh, he did that's all electronic. He recorded it on like an Apple computer. Yeah, yeah. There's a. Uh, I guess like when it came out then it was high res and then like there's the, the remaster, yeah, high res, yeah. the new one, uh, the remaster of it is, uh, before 84. Yeah. It's, uh, right. I, I yeah. Was, whenever I was working for Joe, they had this big barn full of all the stuff and that I peeked in and there's just, you know, mountains of guitar cases. I don't know if there's guitars in there or not, but I'd like to think there was, but, uh, Sharon pointed out that computer he recorded that record on. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. I'm just holding on to it. Well, that, you know, what's strange about that is like, I've, I was telling someone the other day about, you imagine him trying to explain what he was doing to like his contemporaries of the day. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. like trying to explain to like Guy Clark, like, no, I'm writing, I'm recording this record on a computer. Like <laughs> they were probably just like, well, that yeah, he's ahead of his time, man. Now that everybody does that now, bro. Yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah, it sounds so good that. though. You know, it, it's 
Uh, I really love those, like the, the weirdness of it. Cause it's like, it's country, but it's also, you know, craft work. Yeah. It's like craft, love of craft work, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Joe's got that, Joe's got that real interesting, like rock and roll kind of sultry voice, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's interesting hearing that on that electronic music. It's fun to, fun to listen to your candy. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It, it, he's had such a, a, I don't want to say strange, but like such a, a diverse career, because, you know, it, it, those early tapes or like those first records, you know, he's opening for the the Clash, and he's like just the epitome of cool back then, and then like yeah. there is like the the electronic, and then like he's had like these real way more like singer songwriter records and then right. uh he's done the stuff with where it's more acoustic and has accordion and more of like the 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 spanish mexican border flair to it i don't know that, that's there's so much there to work with yeah dude it's crazy to think about it. man dude, i just reminded me whenever i was in high school i went to a small little uh Christian school in Plainview until my senior year when I was at Plainview High the public school. But it was mainly just like little school where all the farmers from the surrounding little towns and communities sent, sent their kids to get a good, solid Christian upbringing. So <laughs> there's like nine kids in my grade. Like the whole school was not kindergarten through 12, 105 people, probably real small. But um, well, our English teacher, she was from Austin. I remember she smoked cigarettes because. I could smell them on her. I thought it was so crazy this teacher smoked cigarettes, but she uh, showed us a town song and a Joe Ely song. And she like printed out the lyrics and it was one one of the class periods. And I I didn't even like think about, re- realize what I was listening to at the time. Obviously, I didn't even know who Joe Ely was until years after. But uh, it was pretty cool her showing us that, you know, I mean, Towns is my all-time favorite songwriter, so just you know, weird memories. Yeah. Well, you know, I was talking with someone about Towns, about how I feel like a lot of us probably came across him in our late teens, and um, you're kind of like drawn to that dark mystery depression stuff about, you know, like these, a lot of those songs are very much about death and alcoholism and like the, mm-hmm. um, I guess like you're, you, it feels like you're more so drawn to that because it's so not, to, it's not talked about. And, um, I don't know, like there's this weird thing with it where, it's later where you realize like, Oh, you know, here he does have all these other songs that are more like the talking blues stuff or like showing there, there's a lot more stuff about that's light lighthearted in there. But for like those first couple of years, like you're just like, Oh, I listen to towns Van Zant for, you know, the song like nothing or waiting around to die. And like, I don't know, like there's, it's uh to fully appreciate towns it feels like you, once you start adding all those other songs, then you 
Oh yeah, you dude. Appreciate all, it all, all of my favorite town songs for the sad. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm a sucker for sad town songs, which luckily for me, he writes a bunch of them. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the just I love the way. I mean, if you can notice from Rattlesnake Milk, I love minor chords. I love the minor chord progressions. Maybe it came from growing up listening to mariachi music, or I don't know exactly, but it's it's in me for sure. And Towns does so much of that. And as soon as I first heard it, I just I remember uh, it was in Austin. I just got out. Of, I went to school in Nashville briefly. Ran into some trouble with the law. Don't we don't have to get into the details? But I had to come back to Texas, <laughs> and uh, I ended up going into a community college in Austin. Got a little crappy student apartment, and they had this Austin Music Network, is what it was called. It was a Channel 14 on basic cable. So in one hour, I was hanging out, and they played like a whole block of towns. It was just like live videos, performances, a couple, you know, that famous clip of him playing Waiting Around to Die, and just all that stuff. And I was just blown away. And I didn't really get into it too much then. Uh, it was probably not until when I moved back to Lubbock when I started really listening to a lot of towns. But uh, he's, yeah, he's the best of all time in my eyes, for sure. Yeah. Like, the the first time I ever, like, the first time I, I got something was because I had read about, like, some reissue that was happening in a magazine. And I was like... You know the, the the way they're you know Texas singer songwriter Towns Van Zant the the greatest thing you know since sliced bread you need to buy this record kind of thing and I remember um, first thinking like oh yeah okay well I'll go get some I'll go get a Towns record and then like going to like Best Buy and like them not having anything <laughs> or like then going to like Walmart yeah. not really having anything and then uh, I remember like my so like a lot of the CDs I got growing up was because my mom had like, had like the, the subscription kind of thing to like Columbia house kind of stuff. Like the, you know, get 10, buy one, get another seven free kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. And I those. They yeah. had a, um, a compilation of towns and it was like, it was the, the two records, the late great towns, Van Zant and high, low and in between on the same CD. And that was like the only thing they had. So I was like, well, I, I got to get that one. So I that's how, where I got it from, was via like Columbia House music. <laughs> Dude, and, that's awesome, man. That's a great story. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like that's where um, we grew up in a, and this is one of those, we're going to sound like get off my lawn kind of thing, but um, I feel like I love having, Spotify and Apple Music and st- like even just YouTube at your fingertips. You can oh, find man. anything you want. But growing up even just 10 years ago, the the search for trying to find whatever record it is or was was part of like why you appreciated that record at the end. <laughs> right. For sure. So I don't know. There's definitely some satisfaction to like digging through a bunch of stuff and finding what you're looking for. Yeah. And it goes back to like that whole MySpace <laughs> thing too. <laughs> there only being like a couple songs on someone's MySpace page and 
trying to have those as your... <laughs> Man, the other thing about towns, too, is that you can tell, like, people that really like towns and listen to them, they're always a little wild or something. They always got a little crazy in them. Yeah. Uh, like, I think, I remember, I just started the radio station at Tech, and uh, they had, you know, once you're there for a while, you get your specialty show. But Alan Brown, who... You know, did a lot of booking and bashing and stuff back then. Later on, at the time, him and this guy Pat, they had the the all country specialty show where they were playing, you know, that kind of you know the thrift possible down George Jones. There's a strict no drinking policy at the radio station, and that was one of the biggest things they always told me whenever you're training. I ended up getting a show block right after them, and I walked in during their show. And, they had a bottle of whiskey out and they're drinking, having a good time there. Like, hit it, kind of put it away real quick because they didn't know me. <laughs> Man, these guys are cool. They're drinking, they're breaking the rules, drinking whiskey, listening to town was playing a lot. It reminded me of that. I was like, Man, I'm cool, I promise. I spent all my money off, I spent all my money on whiskey this month. Couldn't pay the gas bill. Me and Andrew were having to walk to 7 Eleven to take baths in the <laughs> <laughs> uh, I promise yeah, I'm cool. <laughs> good times, good, good times, man. Yeah. Me and Andrew, we, we didn't have heat for a long time. Actually, one whole month in summer, in the dead dead of summer in Lowell, we didn't pay our electricity for years. Just man. You know, trying to get high and drink. You know, <laughs> it was happening. Which, thank God, we grew up out of that phase, but. Part of that love you know, kind of. There's always a weird little Jack Kerouac vibe going down in Lobo. Doesn't make any sense. Kind of just like the roguenness of it. Yeah, like there, it, it, there was, there has always been a little bit of that. Um, and like, I guess like Joe has always kind of been. Joe Joe Ely is kind of like the the Jack Kerouac of of Lubbock. Have you ever read any yeah, of his, like, yeah. his, like, uh, his, like, his, I guess he's got, like, two books. Like, one's poetry, and then one's uh, a Dude, book that book. Bonfire of Roadmaps book you wrote is so good, man. Yeah. You ever, that shit's crazy. Yeah. Also, man, all, at, that, at that time, we were all living in Overton, pretty much, you know? Danny Flute and Tugboat lived in Overton. Uh, Danny Markham was, they, basically, everybody lived in Overton. The Rana Brothers... Uh, Brad Ivy, Zach. So it was just all of us just walking from each other's houses all the time. You know, you didn't really have to drive anywhere. You'd walk to school and there's your bashes. It was just like this cool vibe of a, a bunch of musicians living really close and hanging out with each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know, Lubbock's always changing now. It feels like that's, that feels, even though it wasn't that long ago feel so distant at the same time. I don't know. Yeah, it feels like a foreign time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of New Slang. Be sure to check out Rattlesnake Milk's latest record. Check out episode sponsors Wicker's Jalapeno Jelly and the Blue Light Live here in Lubbock. All right, I'll see you next week for another two interviews.